Well, good morning again, High Point. Did I tell you it was good to be with you today? It is good to be with you. Thank you for being here. Those in person, those who are joining us online, we're glad to have you here. This morning, we are going to continue in our series from the book of Acts, which is Luke's written account of the early New Testament church. And within his writings, we see Jesus' disciples who are continuing to build the church of Jesus Christ absent of Jesus' physical presence, because of course he has ascended to heaven. But as we saw in the second chapter of Acts, just as Jesus promised on the day of of Pentecost, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit arrived to assist them, to provide them with the power to pray in faith for the sick and people were healed, to provide them with a boldness and an anointing to preach the gospel. And because of the Holy Spirit, they experienced dramatic responses to their teachings and their call for people to receive salvation. He also gave them insight and wisdom on how to lead and how to furthermore develop leaders within that first church in Jerusalem. So though Jesus was no longer present in the flesh, the Spirit of God was active within them and empowering them to continue what Jesus had started. And the results have really been nothing short of miraculous. When you look at the history of the church, when you look at the growth, the hundreds of millions of followers of Jesus all over the world in every continent and the effects the church has had upon mankind, as you take it all in, one can just simply stand back and be amazed at all that has been accomplished in the name of Jesus. It is literally staggering. You know, in the years that I have been in ministry, I have attended many seminars for church leaders. And the main focus of most every one of them is church growth through church-based evangelism efforts. And they always do their best to help to try to answer an ongoing thought that those of us in ministry always have. How should we as a church, or, or excuse me, what should we as a church do if we want to spread the gospel and do it as rapidly as the early church? Well, the answer has been summed up in these words, which have become kind of a a popular little thing. You must become a contagious church. So basically, these conferences are set up to help us to understand what we must do to attract the lost into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the reason I share all of this with you today is because in this next portion of scripture that we're going to read, it has a lot to say about the subject of contagious Christianity. And as we pick back up in the latter part of Acts chapter five, you're going to see at this point, the church in Jerusalem is having another one of those growth spurts. In fact, the Christian faith is, is uh, growing and spreading very rapidly. It's becoming contagious because more and more people are, are catching it, if you will. And as we look closely, at our text that we're going to read this morning, I think we'll see some reasons why. We will see principles that will help any church to be a contagious church, a place where people are drawn to faith in Jesus Christ. But before we read our scripture this morning, I wanna take a few minutes to kind of review what has happened up to this point. I wanna remind you once again that, that Acts is the history of the early New Testament church, and it begins with Jesus' ascension to heaven. But before the Lord left, he told his disciples to go to Jerusalem and await the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And so they did as Jesus told them, and on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. And on that amazing day, Peter preached, and 3,000 people put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And from that moment on, the church began to grow at a very fast pace. It even said in chapter two, the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. Then after Pentecost, if you'll recall a couple weeks ago, Peter and John were, were going to the temple to pray when they saw a man who was begging, who had been crippled since birth, He had obvious physical deformities, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, 
Peter healed the man, laid hands, prayed for him, and healed the man. And everyone in the temple was amazed at what had been done in Jesus' name. Not in Peter's power, not in Peter's name, but in Jesus' name. And this event upset the Jewish religious leaders, the same leaders who had arrested Jesus and turned him over to the Romans in order to be crucified. So following their predictable pattern, they had Peter and John arrested, but they let them off with a warning. I'm guessing that was because it was their first offense. They just commanded them to stop preaching the good news of Jesus' death and his victorious resurrection. But these two former fishermen told the Jewish religious leaders that their command was something that they just could not do. Peter said these words, he said, in in essence, he said, I'm sorry, but we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and about what we have heard. And in spite of their first taste of persecution, the church continued to grow numerically. But in addition, the caliber of their fellowship grew as well as they would do anything for each other within the body. In fact, this portion of the book of Acts tells us about members who would actually sell their possessions. Some would even sell their homes and their property, and then they would bring the money to the apostles so that it could be distributed among the people to meet the needs as they were presented. Last week, I shared with you an example of generosity from a man from Cyprus named Barnabas who brought the proceeds from the sale of his land to Peter and the others. It was an act of generosity that that made him very popular throughout the church. You'll also remember, in order to gain some of that popularity for themselves, a husband and a wife named Ananias and Sapphira tried something similar. They sold some property and claimed to give all of the proceeds from the sale to be distributed by the apostles, but they lied not only to Peter, but to the Holy Spirit. And for this sin against God, they both dropped dead right where they stood. And as a result, great fear spread throughout the entire church. And this is where we pick back up. So take your Bibles, if you will, turn with me to Acts chapter 5. We will begin with verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in the pew pocket in front of you, or you can follow along on the screens. All the scriptures will be on the screens behind me. Acts chapter 5, we will be reading verses 12 through 42. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Obviously, a lot of healing was going on. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, They entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin, to be questioned by the high priest. 
We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Of course, they're referring to Jesus. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put aside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. He said, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all of his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged, then ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name for the name of Jesus. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is Messiah. May God add his richness to the reading of his word in our spirits. Let's elaborate just a little bit on what just happened, what we just read. I want you to understand that at this point, the growth of the church was in full throttle. People even started arriving to Jerusalem from towns outside of Jerusalem. And this is particularly exciting because this is the first time the church's influence had spread that far. The disciples were actually beginning to fulfill the Lord's charge found in Acts 1.8 where it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But the news was not all good. Because at this point, the, the disciples once again became targets of persecution. I guess you could say that it was inevitable because after all, they had been warned, right? But the apostles ignored the Sanhedrin's command. So they were arrested and thrown in jail once again. But this time, it wasn't just Peter and John. All 12 of those guys got slammed into jail. And verses 19 and, 10 and 20 tell us that during the night, an angel of the Lord came and he freed them. He told them to get back out there and to tell the people the full message of this new life that Jesus offers. So that's exactly what they did. They went right back to doing the very thing that they had been arrested for. They, they obeyed God rather than obeying man. And I think this is a good, a good place for me to make a very important point. If you do this, if you put God's will first in your life, quite simply, you are going to make waves. And while making waves, you will face persecution in some form because we live in a fallen world. You understand that, right? So when you strive to serve the Lord, his adversary, and our adversary, Satan, he's going to take offense, and he's going to come, and he's going to try to disrupt what you're doing. Well, as we read, when the Sanhedrin, uh, they, they convened, they sent their troops down to the jail to fetch the apostles 
and they found the jail cells empty. The doors were still locked. The guards were still in front of the doors, but there were no apostles. And at that moment, someone comes in and he says, hey, look, the men you put in jail are in the temple courts and they're teaching the people. Now this miracle is probably one of the greatest examples of a double take in all of, all of the Bible. I mean, can you imagine the Sanhedrin's reply to this news? They are where? How in the world can that be? We just locked them up with guards. What are you talking about? By the way, it's worth pointing out that the main instigators of the disciples' arrest were the Sadducees. And I think the fact that God used an angel to free the apostles from jail instead of some other means clearly shows God's sense of humor. Because you have to understand something. The Sadducees didn't believe in the existence of angels. In fact, when they hauled the disciples back in for the second time, the high priest, who was a Sadducee himself, didn't even ask the apostles how they had been delivered from prison the night before. I suspect he didn't ask that question because he didn't want to hear the answer. But something supernatural happened that night. And since it is, did not fit into this man's theology, the high priest kind of steered clear of the issue altogether. Now, what exactly was it about the apostles that upset the Sanhedrin so much? What motivated them to constantly uh, harass and arrest these guys? Well, the text says that they were angry about three things. The first thing was that the apostles had denied their doctrine. Remember, the, the 12 preached and taught about Jesus' resurrection. They also performed miracles, and as I said, they were rescued by an angel. Well, this upset those religious leaders because the Sadducees not only denied the existence of angels, they denied the existence of anything supernatural. And that means that the apostles were a direct attack on their supposed knowledge of the scriptures. It would kind of be like someone coming into a college classroom where the pure evolutionary theory was being taught as fact and then going out in the hallway and spreading the truth that it was God that created the earth. Or it's like somebody carrying a bullhorn during a march for women's rights loudly broadcasting their views on the sanctity of human life. When you do these kinds of things in hostile environments, you can be sure that you are gonna upset some people. And that's exactly what is happening here. But the second reason that the Sanhedrin were so angry is that the apostles denied their authority. As I said, they had been given explicit orders in chapter four to stop preaching, to stop teaching in the name of Jesus. But the 12 ignored their command and they kept right on doing it. The audacity of the apostles really ticked these religious leaders off. They thought, how dare these uneducated men of absolutely no stature refuse to obey our commands? Who in the world do they think we are? We are the Sadducees. To give you a better idea of how that felt, if you're a parent, how do you feel when you tell your kids not to do something and they keep right on doing it? It's always upsetting, isn't it, when your authority is defied? We can relate to how they're feeling, just in a different way. Well, then the third reason that the Sadducees were ticked off was because the apostles were a threat to their domination of or, or over the people. The Sanhedrin could feel their control of the masses starting to, be, to slip away. And they responded the way that they did to try to regain what they were losing. And by the way, they were right to be worrying because according to many scholars, at this point in church history, the church had, had achieved about 10,000 members. I want you to think about that. The first church in history was the first megachurch. 
The entire population of the city of Jerusalem at that time was between 40 and 50,000 people. So the church was no longer some tiny, insignificant group of people. Instead, they had become a real threat to these guys' sovereignty. And we see their line of thinking reflected in this statement made in verse 28 when they said this, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood, of Jesus' blood. But you know, the high priest and his associates in the Sanhedrin weren't just worried about being able to control the the, the early Christians. There was something very human, something very insidious, something very common beneath their, that, that was beneath their opposition. The Sanhedrin were just downright jealous. That's all it was. They saw how the people loved the apostles. They saw how more and more people were praising the name of Jesus and not their name. They were jealous of Jesus because it was Jesus' name that was crossing the lips of the people more than their own. These guys wanted to be revered. They wanted to be respected. They wanted to be popular above everything else. That was a part of being a member of the Sanhedrin. But the apostles were edging them out of the spotlight. I must be talking too harshly. I frightened that baby. (laughs) Twice now. I'll try not to look down that way again, okay? Do I look that mean? Simply put, the Sanhedrin didn't like the apostles. They were trying to take them out of the picture any way that they could. Well, about the time that they were about to form a lynch mob, Gamaliel stands up and he speaks. And when he did, everybody listened because Gamaliel was greatly respected. In fact, if you are a student or if you've done any reading about the life of the Apostle Paul, his name may be familiar to you because Acts 22.3, Paul says that Gamaliel was his teacher. And, and this, was a, this was a fact that was very important on Paul's early resume when he was Saul. There was a good chance at this point in time, Paul was sitting under Gamaliel's teaching still at this time in church history because he wasn't a believer yet. He was still Saul, the Jew of the Jews. But in any case, Gamaliel was highly esteemed. In fact, the Jews have a saying, when Rabbani Gamaliel, the elder died, the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died. That's how they thought about this guy. Now, when we read Gamaliel's response and we elaborate on this timely statement that he makes, at first, some of the things he says might sound just a little bit noble, but he was wrong on so many different fronts. To begin with, he automatically classified Jesus with two rebels, Theudas and Judas, which to me indicated that he already rejected the evidence of Jesus' resurrection. He already judged Jesus as being just one more overly zealous Jew from the backwoods, someone who was engaging in a futile attempt to set the nation free from Rome. Furthermore, as it says in verse 38, Gamaliel had the mistaken idea that if something is not of God, it must fail. He said those words. And I say mistaken because This way of thinking doesn't take into consideration the sinful nature of mankind or the presence of our adversary, Satan, in this world. I mean, because the truth is, all you have to do is look in the history books and see that many times throughout the ages, evil has in fact triumphed. The bad guys win a lot on this side of eternity. It's like Mark Twain once said, he said, a lie runs around the world while truth is still putting on her shoes. Make no mistake, however, in the end, God's truth will prevail. We will be victorious, just like I told you earlier this morning. But in the meantime, Satan can be very strong and he can be effectively an influence on people's lives. 
So in spite of what pragmatists like Gamaliel say, earthly success is not a reliable test of the truth. This world is a battlefield on which truth and error are constantly in mortal combat on a continuous ongoing basis. And it often looks as though the truth has been defeated while wrong sits arrogantly on some kind of a throne. We see this almost daily as those who govern our own state keep creating laws that undermine our biblical view of life as well as to promote and even celebrate sin. Daily, honestly, it becomes easier to relate to what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 73, three, when he said, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Well, the sad fact is in this fallen world of ours, evil often triumphs and the wicked do prosper. But I want you to hang on, my fellow believers in Christ. We win in the end. They're gonna have their moment. They're gonna shine for a while, but they will be snuffed out like a cigarette. It's as simple as that. It will be over and, and we will win. God wins every time. See, Gamaliel wasn't as wise as the people thought. And his biggest error was thinking that the council that he was talking to could be neutral when it came to Jesus. I mean, his let's wait and see attitude is actually not neutrality at all. It's a definite negative decision. Remember when Jesus made clear that it was impossible to be neutral about him and about his message? In Matthew 12, 30, he said this, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And this is something everyone who is not in a redemptive relationship with Jesus would do well to remember. Because as I've said many times, putting off a decision about Jesus or deciding to wait and see is no different than saying no. So what does this chapter of church history teach us about being a contagious kind of a church? Well, I wanna point out three things to you this morning that if applied, I believe can make a church a contagious church. And also, if applied to your and my personal lives, will make us contagious Christians. They can help us to be the kind of people that attract people, other people, to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And here's number one. Contagious churches and Christians do not condone sin. To see what I mean, look back at where it refers to the sin of Ananias and Sapphira and the results of their lie. In verse 13, it said, no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. There was fear, as I shared last week, about what had happened to, to Ananias and Sapphira. But nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord, and they were added to their numbers. So basically, the righteous judgment of these two hypocrites that they received made the church attractive to people who were serious about following the Lord. The church's stand against sin, both then and today, actually repels fake people and those with the wrong kind of motives, like Ananias and like his wife Sapphira. But it attracts people who hunger for genuine faith. It's what draws them to the church in the first place. And this is an important principle to understand. Because many people these days would say that in order to grow a church, you must be more tolerant of sinful behavior, and that way you will attract more people. Many would advise not to be prudish or old-fashioned in your morality. Otherwise, you will turn people off, and they won't come through the doors. Well, the fact is, I believe and know that people are hungry to know that there are standards they want morality to be preached. They want a sure foundation in which to build their lives and their families upon. They know that deep inside that there is a thing called right and there is a thing called wrong and they wanna know how to live right. 
C.S. Lewis wrote about this inner knowledge and refers to it as the nagging ought. We all know we ought not to do what is right, or excuse me, we, we all know we ought to do what is right, so people are naturally attracted to groups that don't condone doing what we ought not to do. But please don't misunderstand what I'm trying to express to you this morning. Yes, we should take a stand against sin, but we must always open our arms to those who are trapped in sin. It's as simple as that. If we didn't, this building and all churches would be sitting empty. We should make it clear that we hate sin, but equally clear that we love everyone because no one is exempt from God's love. And the, thank you. And, and the best way to love a person caught in sin is to help him or her to leave their sinful actions and their sinful lifestyle. And this kind of attitude attracts the lost because as any sinner knows, down to the core of their very being, sin hurts. And sin enslaves us. So sinners want power to leave sin. And understand, that's a power that only Jesus can provide. You can't buy that kind of power anywhere. Did you, do you get this? People are drawn to churches where that power is proclaimed. Many years ago, there was an American company that distributed a special toy, an action toy called Invisible Jim. The toy was selling like hotcakes in Great Britain for a mere $2.80. They, it's called Invisible Jim because all you got was an empty package. There was no Jim inside after all, he's invisible. And the company's ad campaign said, lack of darting eyes and as not seen on TV. Well, well, people trapped in sin are a lot like the kids who got that gift and opened it up and found that there was nothing there. They learned very quickly that sin is nothing but a series of, of broken promises and, and empty promises. They have learned by painful experience what Proverbs 10.28 says, the prospect of the righteous is joy but the hopes of the wicked come to nothing. So to be a contagious church and to attract people to Jesus, we must embrace this principle. And though I don't agree with this minister's stance on the Holy Spirit, Pastor John MacArthur had said something that I totally agree with. The failure of some churches today to preach holy living and to discipline those who don't live that way convolutes its direction saps its power, robs it of purity, and mars its testimony. And then I love this quote from Reverend Robert Murray McShyanne from way back in the 1800s when he said this, it is not great talents God blesses as much as a great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hands of God. The fact is genuine faith, faith that, faith that lives by the word of God and takes a stand against sin, no matter what the culture says, that is a contagious kind of a faith. Because so few people have the courage to stand up for anything today. So when we stand up for the truth of Jesus Christ, people recognize that, they realize there must be truth to what we're standing for, and it becomes contagious. Well, the second thing that this text teaches is that contagious churches and Christians show and tell what Jesus is doing in and through them. You see, I believe one reason the early church grew so rapidly is because they did not hide behind closed doors. They met right there in the temple. It says in Solomon's colonnade, where everybody, including the Sanhedrin, could walk by and they could witness what was going on. The colonnade was a, was a long portico or, or, a, or a porch stretched along the eastern side of the courthouse, or courtyard, excuse me. And here in this public place, the church displayed the power of God in action. They worshiped there and they gave testimony of all that God had been doing in and through them. The truth is like bugs get drawn to a light People are attracted to a place where God is active. 
where God is known to be at work. So to grow a contagious church, we must constantly look for ways to express to those outside of these walls that God is at work in this place. And he's doing amazing things in our lives. And he's doing amazing things furthermore through us. And one of the best ways to do that is through your own personal testimony. When you tell others about the difference that your relationship with Jesus has made upon your life. And you know another reason why you should never quit telling your personal story? Because the Bible says they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the what? The word of their testimony. So when you testify to God's goodness in your life, you not only bring truth to somebody who desperately needs to hear that truth and needs to have their lives literally changed by it, but you get strengthened by doing so. It's a win-win situation. It's a win for you. It's a win for the person that you talk to. I believe that people are drawn to stories of God's transforming power. And they start to think to themselves, if God can do this for you in your life, if he can free you from fear and enable you to be able to say no to sin, then perhaps he can do the same thing for me. How many times have you told someone about a a really good movie you watched and you encouraged somebody to go see it? How many times have you told someone about a wonderful restaurant and a particular meal that you ate there that you have to go and order? You gotta eat this, this is like heaven. How many times have you told someone of a vacation destination that you thought was so good that you encouraged them to spend the money and go there themselves. We do these kinds of things all the time. Let me ask you, how many times have you told someone about Jesus? What he's done in your life and how he has literally transformed you from the inside out. The principle that I want us to grasp as a people and as a church is very simple. If we are going to be contagious, we must look for every possible and conceivable way to say to the world, come in here and see all that Jesus has done and is continuing to do in us. And that leads me to the third and the final principle of church-based evangelism that I see in this text. Contagious churches and Christians never forget that their message is the cross of Jesus Christ. They don't allow themselves to get sidetracked by overemphasizing other things. The focus is on one thing. It is the cross, what was accomplished on the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't know if any of you remember the movie City Slickers. If you do, you're probably over 40 years of age. It's my comfort zone there, okay? The, the 40 and above. That you got, you're my people. Yeah. Not that I'm 40. I wish I were 40. In that film, Billy Crystal played a confused and dissatisfied 30-something character with a vague sense that life was just passing him by. And so in order to find himself, he goes on a cattle drive and the head honcho is an ancient, leathery, wise to the ways of the world cowboy. He's, he's, he's actually described in the movie as a saddlebag with eyes. It was played by Jack Palance, if you've ever seen the movie. You understand what I'm talking about. That was one weird guy anyway, but anyhow. One day he asked Crystal, Billy Crystal, if he would like to know the secret of life. It's this, the head honcho said, while holding up a single finger. And of course... It's a comedy, so Billy Crystal says, the secret of life is your finger? He said, it's one thing. The secret of life is pursuing one thing. Well, the secret of church growth is likewise pursuing one thing. It's focusing on one thing. The, the, the wonderful fact that Jesus Christ is God's only son. And he came to this earth and he died on the cross for our sin. And if we are to reach the loss, the single message must always be at the forefront 
of everything that we do. I like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For what I received, and I read that this morning, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. And we see here in Acts that old Peter never, ever forgot that. He had already preached or only preached four sermons, and the focus of every one of them was the cross of Jesus Christ. Craig Barnes, former pastor of a national Presbyterian church, tells about a time when after a service, a lady came through his receiving line and she complained. She said, Pastor, all you ever preach about is the cross. The cross, the cross, the cross. That's all we hear. He responded by saying, thank you for paying me the highest compliment I have ever received. And it was a compliment because all pastors, all believers in Jesus, all churches, we've got to be cross-centered. We must be. And, and there are many reasons this is true. For example, the Old Testament, the end times, prayer, personal holiness, healing, the Holy Spirit, relationships, yes, even evangelism, none of these things can be understood or happen apart from the cross. But the main reason is, the main reason that we must be cross-centered is the fact that if we are not, if we don't lift up high the message of the cross, our evangelistic efforts will be weakened. Remember Jesus promised in John 12, 32, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. In a church in a little town in, in Sweden, there's an unusual crucifix that hangs on a pillar opposite of the pulpit. And the crucifix was a gift given to that church by the King of England when he visited there in 1716. The visit was unexpected. And as you can imagine, it created quite a stir. And when the pastor saw the king walking up the path to his church with his entourage, he threw aside his prepared sermon. And instead, that morning, he gave tribute to the king and to his family. A few months later, the church received a, the crucifix from the king with these instructions. This is to hang on the pillar opposite of the pulpit so that whoever stands there will be reminded of his proper subject. That 17th century King Charles understood that he was only an earthly king, but there was a heavenly king, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. High point, if people are to be attracted to Jesus, we must never forget our proper subject. Our central message is what, is, is what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's what we must proclaim. Amen. Scott, will you come forward and like everyone to, take a, to stand to your feet, all those of you who can. This message today from the history of the first church in Jerusalem is challenging on a couple fronts. First, for anyone here this morning who has not received salvation in Christ Jesus, we have lifted high this morning the name of Jesus and his work on the cross, and that means Jesus is drawing you to himself this morning. If you're feeling a stirring inside of you, if you're experiencing an uncomfortableness, it's because Jesus is reaching out to you. He longs to be in a personal relationship with you. He wants to be the Savior and the Lord of your life. He wants to see you completely set free from things that bind you up and hold you back. And that happens when you invite him to be Lord and Savior of your life. He cleanses you and he washes you clean from your sin. And the Bible says you become a new creation. You can live a life of peace, a life that is complete, uh, completely free, no longer being bound by sin, and you can experience an entirely new way of living. This place is full of people who were once trapped in, in sin's grip. But when we cried out to Jesus, he, he saved us. We were set free, and we were forgiven of our sin. And furthermore, we were filled 
with the Holy Spirit. So you can experience that today, and it is so simple, and yet it is so transforming. In Romans chapter 9, 10, verses 9 and 10, it says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It says, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and it is with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Jesus is calling out to you today, giving you yet another opportunity to receive his free gift. But the question becomes, will you? Will you not make a decision which is as good as saying no, or will you make a decision to follow him? All it takes is to respond to his invitation. And in a moment, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do that. But I also wanna speak to everyone in this place who is already a blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ. This message was equally about us being a contagious people who attend and participate in a contagious church. Well, since the church is people, then really it's about being contagious followers of Jesus Christ. I know you follow Jesus. I know you live your life guided by the principles found in his word and also by the direction of the Holy Spirit. But would you say that you are a contagious Christian? You see, I find a lot of Christians are very stealth-like. We're very much into Jesus when we're here. We even talk Christian talk, but when we walk outside of this place, no one really knows that we're Christians because we never talk about it. They might see you do kind things and think maybe there's something different about that person. They may sense the love of God and the Holy Spirit in you. But I believe we need to show who it is that we serve, who it is we live for. Maybe this message this morning has challenged you as you've compared yourself to those in the early church. I, I know I have, but here's the deal. It's one thing to be challenged. We get challenged all the time. It's another thing to, to act upon that challenge. And so this morning, I, I wanna ask as we open this altar that you too come down here with the purpose of committing your life to the cause of Christ and you crying out to the Lord and saying, I want to be a contagious Christian. I no longer want to keep all of this tied up in my body and in my bones. I, I want to let it out. I want people to know who I am. I want people to know what I stand for, not for my sake, but for their sake. And, and for God to make you aware of the people in your surroundings, the people you work with, the people you socialize with, the people you go to school with, that, you would, that he would, you would recognize them as a soul that is in desperate need of salvation. And maybe not even be more aware, but to share with them what God is doing in your life and how they desperately need him. Most of us don't do this. And the reason we don't do this is we don't feel like we can. We don't feel like we have the ability. Well, can I just tell you that is the enemy filling your head full of lies. After all, he is called the father of lies. Satan is the father of lies. But I'm here to tell you this morning that just like those fishermen and tax collectors and every other conceivable work that these people did in that early church, you can have the Holy Spirit indwelling you and he will bring you power, power to do these things and power to do them well. He will not only provide you with a boldness to do so, but he will even help you with the words of what to say. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people who got into it with somebody, started telling them about the Lord. They were scared to death. They didn't want to say the wrong thing. And when it was all done, I say, so what did you say? They said, I don't really know. They didn't know because the Holy Spirit took over. There were things coming out of their mouth that they didn't even know that they knew. They were saying such things that were so profound that it cut to the heart of that individual and they didn't even have a clue that they were saying things that were touching the heart of that individual. That's how the Holy Spirit works in your and my life. But he can't work in and through us if we're not willing vessels. 
And so what I'm asking you as a church, first I'm asking those who don't know Jesus to come to know him. But for those of you who do know him, would you have the courage to come down to this altar, whether you kneel or stand, it doesn't matter, and just cry out to God and say, God, I want to get in the game. I want to be a part of seeing revival come, not to high, just not to High Point Assembly, but to Red Bluff, California. Wouldn't it be awesome if every church in this community had to have multiple worship services because people were getting saved in such a fast way, like in the early New Testament church? What if 10,000 people in Red Bluff came to know Jesus in the next 30 days? There's not enough churches to hold them. But that's what God has called us to do. And what we've seen in the early New Testament church is if it can happen then, it can happen today. While the worship team sings, if you'd like to come and find a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you'd like to come and say, God, I am willing and I am ready and I am able to be used by you. Let's spend some time at this altar and then we will close the service in prayer. You give life, you are love, you bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore every heart that is broken.
at the altar, continue to pray, and they can stay here as long as they'd like. I want to pray over you. Heavenly Father, we stand here today as a people who are so thankful for Jesus. We are so thankful for the redemption of our sin. We are so thankful for the promise of eternal life. We are so thankful that your Holy Spirit indwells us and empowers and directs us and gives us everything that we need to be equipped in this crazy world in which we live. But God, we also stand here as a people who know that there are millions upon millions who do not know you. And some of them are in our very household. And some of them are in our workplace. And some of them are in our families, extended families, and some of them are our friends who we spend a great deal of time with. Father, would you ignite in our hearts a desire, a passion, not to just live in the faith that we have, but that we would be willing to share that faith with others who so desperately need it. God, when we look at people, would you let us see what they really are? Not just friends, not just work associates, but they are men and women who are damned to an eternity absent of God if they do not come to know Jesus. Father, open our hearts to be used by you. Let us not be afraid to see pe for people to see us in action, doing the things that you've called us to do. God, give us a, a passion for it. And when we see our victories, we will only want to do it more. Father, you know I've been praying for revival in this community with the pastors in this place, in this community for over seven, eight years. God, it is time. It is time for us to see revival break loose in Red Bluff, California. And we say, let it happen here, Lord. Let it begin here. Let it begin in this place. Let it begin in our hearts. Let it begin in our passion. So Father, I ask that you'd use each one of us in your own special way. Every person in this place has gifts and talents that they can use to glorify you and to further your kingdom. I pray that this wouldn't just become an idea, but it would be something that everyone here would act upon. That as we won one soul, and that soul won another, and so on and so on, Father, this whole city could be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. So hear our prayers this morning, Lord. Break our heart for what breaks yours and use us to further your kingdom. Father, as we go our separate ways today, pray that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct our steps, the places we go, the things we do, the conversations we have. Let them be conversations that build people up and not tear anyone down. Let us shine with such bright lights in a dark world that it would become obvious that we are a child of God. And rather than us having to start a conversation, people will just naturally come up and say, what is it about you that's different? And the door is open and then we can share your goodness with them. Father, let us not fear those moments and let us not walk away from them, but let us fully engage and watch as your spirit uses us. God, I'm gonna pray for a divine appointment for every person in this place this week. That someone will cross our path that needs Jesus and we will have an opportunity to share who you are, what you've done in and through us, but even more, and after that, invite them into the house of God with them so that they can have a friend to sit with as they hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So Father, use us, I pray, in Jesus' name. And, and I also ask God that you would keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us, any sicknesses or disease that might come to us. Bring healing to bodies today, I pray. And God, as we leave here, let us leave here in the love of Christ. And I ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here today. God bless you.